tell you an important message that I always tell myself whenever I'm having a bad day that relates to this song. With God, there is no bad day for us. We always should have a happy day because we know that God loves us no matter what's happening. No matter we get a bad grade on a test, okay, that's one grade in the entire grade book. Do better next time. But have, don't let that ruin, that one little moment ruin your day. Make it better. Make you, come back from that and, um, have a stronger and better attitude going into the next thing that messes with your mind. So as we move on to the song, just remember that. Thank you. 
I'm out of breath for that one. All right, as we get into the last song, I'm going to pray for offering. And then uh, after we finish the last song, John will say his message. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful night, Lord. Um, I just pray for this offering, Lord, that it gets to the people who need it more than we do, Lord. Um, that they use the money to get the things they need, like food, water, and medicine, Lord. I just pray that they know that this money comes from you, Lord, and not from us. It's not for our glory. It's all for yours, Lord. In your name I pray, amen. Shake before him, the demons run and flee. At the mention of the name, King of Majesty, there is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of Great I Am, Great
Father, we come here to worship you tonight, Lord. I just thank you that there is no one above you, Lord. There is no power in hell or any who can stand, Lord, before the presence of you. I just pray tonight as John comes up here and speaks his message, Lord, that it speaks to our hearts, Lord, and we stick with it, Lord, and we keep it in our hearts and our minds, and as we leave here, we apply it to our lives. I pray this in your name, Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question, and this is not a question for you to answer, because I ask questions, and sometimes it's confusing whether or not they need to be answered out loud. So um, think about this the entire time I'm talking tonight. Why do you act the way that you do? Why do you act the way that you do? And, 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 and if it helps you kind of get clarity of that question, what I mean specifically, what motivates you to make the choices that you make? So when you make a choice, when you make a decision in the moment, what is the motivating thing driving that decision or choice? Why do you act the way that you do? And I think you'll find in different situations, obviously, there's different motives, but you'll find some consistencies in that. So um, over the spectrum of three, four years of your life, you'll kind of see very similar patterns of things that motivate your, your, your life's choices, things that you've decided to do and why you've decided to do them, and those things will kind of line up. But I want you to think about why do you choose to do the things that you do? And the reason why I want you to think about that question is uh, we had, we've had a great time digging into the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are like this really sweet picture of what Christ has called us to do as disciples and the reward that we get from that. And so we get this great list of things, right? This list of things, this list of not do's and don'ts or you need to do this, but um, all of these things have actions associated with them. And one of the things that's very interesting about Scripture and about Christianity in general, and you can challenge me on this if you would like, but Christianity is the only religion on the earth that doesn't tell you to do better or change your behavior. The difference between Christianity and many of the other religions of this world is Christianity actually says you can't change yourself. You can't change your behavior. Only through the power of Christ and the power of the gospel and the power of God can you actually be changed. And that change is not something that you're doing. It's something that God is doing in you. And by work that God is doing in you, your actions change. You're changed from the inside out. Um, the inside of you is cleansed, and as God is cleaning the inside of you through his spirit and by the blood of Jesus, you begin to want to live differently. You want to follow Jesus. You, you desire to know God at a greater level. You desire to open up your Bible because the Bible is the primary means that you know God speaks to you today. And so you're, you're driven to go into the Bible. And so um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people that will tell you that um, Christianity is about just trying harder and doing better. And I will beat this drum as long as I get the opportunity to stand up here. And that's not what it's about. It's not about trying to do good things. Christianity is about knowing God and who he is and enjoying God and who he is. And out of knowing God and who he is and, and, and growing in your faith that way, growing and knowing God, you'll begin to look more like Jesus. It's not try better and then know God. It's know God and God will change you and mold you and shape you and conform you to the image of Jesus. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else. Everything else just says try harder. If you're not good enough, God will not love you. Christianity says you're not good enough, and yet God loves you and pursues you and wants 
to know you and wants you to know him. And so he sent his son as a means for you to, to, to get to know him, as a bridge that you can walk across to get to the Father. That's who Christ is. But I think because of the, the actions and the behaviors associated with following Jesus, so we know that there are certain things that we do as followers of Jesus, right? Like, I have actions. I have things that I need to do as a Christ follower. But sometimes I can get my, act, my identity in what I'm doing as a Christ follower, not as a Christ follower. I can be so wrapped up in ministry that I begin to find my identity as a pastor and not as a child of God. And so I begin to determine my value as a pastor and not a child of God. And I think we can do this a lot too. And I think Jesus was aware of this. And so right after he gives this general list of all these things, he immediately reminds the disciples of their identity in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, where it talks about you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Many of us have heard this passage before. We've heard um, you're supposed to be salt and light or the kind of cliche thing. You're in the world, but you're not of the world, right? You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And, And that phrase, in the world, but not of the world, is actually not in the Bible. The idea is all over the place, but that phrase, that specific thing, in the world, but not of it, that's not in Scripture, but it's true. Because the idea is all over the place. And we see that idea here in Matthew 5. So um, somebody who's there, can you read verses 13 through 16? If you don't have a Bible, you have no excuse because it is on the board up here on the screen. Go for it. Thanks, Manuel. This is a, uh, uh, this passage, and, and I'm just going to kind of put it this way. Um, this passage is the biggest challenge of this passage is to live like who you are. And grammatically, that makes no sense. But um, again, we, and we've talked about this, the Sermon on the Mount is not directed to just anybody, right? The Sermon on the Mount is, is given to the disciples. And so if you kind of picture it like this, so... Um, Jesus called the disciples to himself. He challenged 12 guys. He said, I I want you to follow me. They said, yes. We'll just say, I know there's not 12 of you. You're the 12 disciples, just in this scenario. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. And and the Sermon on the Mount is being given to you. But the crowds, this is for you. This isn't for them. This is for you. But the crowds are listening to what I'm saying to you. And so the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, this challenge, the crowds are not the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Followers of Jesus are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Are you getting a picture of kind of what's going on here? But imagine 12 and then hundreds, okay? So completely bigger scale outside, probably looks way more beautiful than it does in here. That's, that's what's going on in this passage. The first thing Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus is a masterful teacher, and this is something that I want to grow in personally as a teacher, because what Jesus does often in his teaching is he takes concepts and ideas that, like, common people, normal folks would know, and he uses these images, these very simple images to to communicate incredible truths of the Bible and incredible truths of God. Because when we think about the Bible, we think about truths of God, it's, it's big. God is big, he's huge, difficult to understand, and Jesus as a masterful teacher takes images that anybody could understand to communicate truth, like salt. 
um, back in the first century, they didn't have fridges and they didn't have freezers, right? So guess what they used to preserve their food, their meat? Salt, exactly. And so salt acts not just as this, this thing that we can use to make bad things taste better. Salt actually purifies whatever it's put on so that bad bacteria cannot corrupt it. And I'm not going to get into the science of all this and how it works. If you want to learn about how salt actually combats and preserves food, you can talk to Mr. Hampack after, after <laughs> the message. But I'm right, right? Yes, yes, the high school dropout got it. Perfect. Okay, so salt acts as this, this purifying agent to fight against the decay, the natural decay that would happen at, against meat. So how does that relate to us? As Christ followers, we are the salt of the earth. What does that mean? If the earth is going to be purified, it's going to happen through us. Jesus is challenging the disciples to remember who they are. They are the ones who God is going to use and chooses to use to fight back against the decay and the corruption of this world. Listen, you don't have to watch the news long to see that this world is, is, is dying, that there's something wrong. There's so much hate and division and horrible things going on in this world. We don't have to watch the news long to see that. The ones who fight back against that corruption and decay, the ones who are, who are the solution to the problem are the disciples of Jesus. That's what he's saying. If, if purification is going to happen, it's going to come through the body of Christ. That's through the body of believers, through everyone in the world who is following Jesus. And so this image gives us an aspect of how our identity as followers affects the way we live. Because we have a mission to purify the earth. We have a mission to combat and war against the decay of this world. That's our purpose. That's our mission. That's, that's who we are as followers of Jesus. And we get the opportunity to, to fight back against that decay and corruption. This is the call of being a disciple. And the reason why we can do this, the reason why God chooses to use his people to do this, is because in Christ we've been purified completely. Notice what Jesus says. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now what this isn't saying is, like, you're the salt of the earth, but you need to be careful and do a bunch of stuff so you don't lose your taste. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that impure and corrupted salt as a mineral is the only type of salt that can lose its taste, that can lose its saltiness. An amazing thing about salt is salt at its purity, if you have pure salt, it will never lose its flavor, ever. Salt at its purest form will never lose its flavor. And in Christ, we have been purified completely. So what does that mean? We'll never lose Christ because we've been purified completely. The finished work of Christ at the foot of the cross has cleansed you from all guilt, shame, and consequences of sin and death. Completely. It's a, it's a perfect cleansing. It's a perfect purification. Sin has no power over you anymore if you're a follower of Jesus. And in that way, you've been purified completely. And so because you are completely pure, you are now an instrument in the hands of God used to purify this earth and bring this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
That's why God's people are the ones who can do kingdom work. That's why God calls his people to do kingdom work on earth because they're the pure ones. And because we've been purified completely, what this means, this is, this is showing salt that's lost its taste is completely useless. We can throw it on the ground and run all over it. It doesn't mean anything. It's not worth anything anymore. But salt as its purest form is the most useful. And so, so not only are you, as a, as, a, as a disciple of Christ, not only are you called to, to, to move against the decay and the corruption of this world, but you are also called because you've been completely purified and you are the most useful tool that God chooses to use in doing so. The primary means that God chooses to bring his kingdom on this earth is through his people. And so not only are you purified, but you're useful. And God wants to use you. He wants to. He desires to. It's not a hassle for him to use his people to accomplish his kingdom work on earth. This is our mission as salt. And so we also see in this passage that a disciple's life not only works to purify the earth of its corruption, but a disciple's life also works to bring light into a dark world. Now, what does this mean? There is no such thing as an invisible Christian. There's no such thing as an invisible Christian. What does that mean? You can't hide. I think we, living in fear and forgetting who we are, when we're at school, when we're at work, when we're wherever, we, we, we fall into this temptation like we need to hide who we are. And we need, to, we need to take on some other identity so that we can relate to somebody else in the room or whatever. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, God has not called you to go to school and hide Jesus from your friends. In fact, his word goes as far to say that it is impossible to hide light. Could we hide the light that's coming out of these, these? Could we hide that? No. Even if it's dark. Even if it's dark. You'll be able to find wherever the light in the room is. Immediately. Why? It draws your eye. You are drawn to see the light. And the interesting thing about light. The interesting thing about light. is that even if you shut your eyes, you can tell that there's light in the room. Light is the one thing in this universe that physically cannot be hidden. So let me ask you something. Why are you hiding? Why are you trying to hide? Because you can't hide. But why are you trying to? What motivates that behavior? What dictates that choice? Have you forgotten who you are as salt and light in this world? One of the most amazing things about this, 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 this um, picture of light. Is that the one I want? No, that's not the one I want. This is the one I want. One of the most amazing pictures about light and Jesus giving this claim and saying, you are the light of the world is in John chapter 8, verse 12, he sa Jesus says this to crowds of people. Jesus says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So if Jesus is is the light of the world, how can the disciples also be the light of the world? Let me ask you something. What do you guys know about the moon? Brilliant. The moon has no light, does it? In and of itself, it has no light. The moon by itself is darkness, complete dark. We can't see it. But because of the light of the sun reflecting off of the moon, we can see the moon clearly. By myself, I have no light. I am complete darkness. John chapter 3 says, Jesus says in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, this is the verdict. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And men fear to walk in the light. Men fear, people fear to move near to God because they don't want their sin to be exposed. They don't want their darkness to be exposed by the light. And so we stay away from the light. We try to run from it. This is the condition of our heart if we don't know God. This is what sin does to the human being. It causes us to live in darkness. But when we're saved and when Christ sends us his spirit, as a guarantee of our salvation, and when we are cleansed from our sin by the work of the Spirit given to us by God, we are then reflectors of the light of Jesus. And so wherever we go, people don't see me. Wherever I go, people shouldn't see John. When I'm up here, you shouldn't see me. And if you do, the point is to see Jesus. If I'm making being up here all about me, I'm not living out of who I actually am. The point of me being up here is is to help reflect Christ to you. The point of you being at school, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, is to reflect this light at school, at work, at home. And so what's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? The point is that, let me go back, I'm going all over the place here. The point is that at the end of verse 16, it says this. In the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I'll go back so you can see it. Right there, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'm going to give you a Bible reading secret. Right now, I love Bible reading secrets. You see the word so that? Anytime you see the word so that, usually what's happening is, is the author is giving you a purpose statement. He's telling you why he's writing what he's writing. And so everything that Jesus says in this passage is for this purpose, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now what is glory? What does it mean to give glory to God? What does it mean to give glory to God? What do you think it means? To worship him? Okay. Yeah. God gets the credit for the goodness that we bring. And that's giving him glory. God gets worship from people that don't know him. And in that, God gets glory. Honor praise, respect. You could name it tons of ways and all of it points to God's glory. And God is all about 
getting glory for himself. Why? Because in the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments is you should have no other gods before me. God is the greatest thing in the entire universe. And so check this out. If God put anything before himself, he would be committing idolatry because he would be putting something before God. And so God has to be about his own glory. He has to be about making his own name famous because he is the greatest thing that can be made famous. If God was to put anything above himself, he would be committing idolatry full of sin and wouldn't be perfect and the Bible would be meaningless. But because God is all about his own glory, it holds the scriptures together. And so our good works, the things that we do are not to further my own name. The things that we do as Christ followers are not to to further our reputation as good Christians. The things we do as Christ followers is not to make somebody uh, more excited about me and who I am and what I'm doing. The thing, the big deal about the things we do as a Christ follower is it reflects the light of Jesus, it points back to the Father, and it takes people who are living in the corrupt decay of this world and living in darkness, shows them the light, gives them the desire to walk into that darkness, they get saved, and then they become reflectors of that same light to the darkness of this world. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of Scripture. All for the credit, glory, honor, and fame of him who does all of the work. We did not come up with the salvation plan. God came up with it. God was motivated to send his own son to die on our behalf. To take the consequences of our sin and to put them on a perfect man in Jesus. And to have his wrath and the consequences of sin completely satisfied because Christ died. And we know that God's wrath was completely satisfied in Christ's death because of Christ's resurrection. Christ's death was like Jesus writing the check for sin to pay the debt of our sin, and his resurrection showed that the check cleared. It showed that he was the son of God. It showed that Jesus was not just a man, but God himself. And this is the light that we are called to reflect for the glory, honor, and credit of him. Our good things and the good things we do are not about us. Your spiritual gifts, whatever those are, my spiritual gifts are not for me. Your spiritual gifts are not for you. They're for others. And they're for him. We are compelled to live this way. We are compelled as as Christ followers. Because of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we can't help but follow Jesus. That's the power of God at work in the human being. And I love how 2 Corinthians words it. Second, or 1 Corinthians words it. 1 Corinthians 5 says this. For the love of Christ controls us. We are so motivated by Christ's love that it controls everything that we do. Christ's love controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does that mean, one has died for all and, and therefore all died? Basically what that means is, is as followers of Jesus, we have died to ourselves. We have died to our selfish wants. We have died to our sin. 
and we are now controlled and compelled and motivated by the love of Christ, not the love of our flesh, not the love of our sin, not the love of what we want, but the love of what he wants. And the amazing thing about what God does in this moment is it's not like a begrudging control. I want to be controlled by Christ's love. Why? Because my greatest enjoyment, my greatest satisfaction is in him and not anything in this world. We talked about this when we talked about the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. They won't want anything else but righteousness. They won't want anything else but God, and so their joy will be filled because of their desire for God. When we make our ultimate desire, our ultimate pleasure God, we will never be disappointed. We will never want anything else because we have all we, we, we want. We're completely satisfied. We're completely filled. Well, with that, we will close in prayer. Let me ask you this. Would anyone like to close in prayer? Go ahead. Well, um, ice camp deposits and slips are due in three weeks. If you need an extra one, we have plenty. Or if you need one for a friend, have a good week.